If you have not been with us uh, this fall, we have been going through the Gospel of John for much of the fall. A lot of our messages have been coming out of the Gospel of John. And today is the last uh, day that we'll be covering the Gospel of John. And then starting next week, we're going to be doing a series on Advent. Advent is a time uh, of preparation for Christmas. Down through the centuries, Christians all over the world have used the four Sundays, really the four weeks, leading up to Christmas just to prepare their hearts spiritually for Advent. And that's something that we're going to do here at Renaissance. We've done it uh, off and on for a number of different years. I'm really excited about it this year, and I hope that you guys will come out and join us for that. But as I mentioned, uh, today we're going to be kind of wrapping up uh, the messages that we've been doing in the Gospel of John, and we're going to do it a little bit differently uh, this morning. If you have been with us this fall, you know we've been encouraging you to read through the Gospel of John, and I know some of you read through it once or twice, three different times throughout the Gospel of John, and one of the things that I've encouraged you to do is to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, of Jesus' followers, and read it and look through their eyes. What was it like for them to meet Jesus, to encounter Jesus, to interact with Jesus from their perspective? And doing that, I've done that some this fall, and doing that can really help us to get a fresh and a deeper perspective on who Jesus is and how we have a relationship with him. So this morning, I actually want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to pretend that I am Thomas, who was one of Jesus' disciples, and we're going to look at a couple of incidents, several incidents in Jesus' life through the eyes of a guy who we probably know as Doubting Thomas. So, well, Clay's right. My name is uh, Thomas, and uh, I actually don't like the name Doubting Thomas. I know you guys call me that, and I know it's because... You know, at the, end of, uh, at the end of Jesus' ministry, after he had died, I doubted whether he had really risen from the dead. And it kind of bothers me. You know, this whole sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me kind of thing. That's actually not true. It actually does hurt when you guys refer to me to doubt, as Doubting Thomas. Because, you know, like all of the other disciples, all the other guys, they doubted too. They had the same questions. They weren't sure that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so it's not really fair for you guys to refer to me that way. But we'll come back to that in a little while. What I want to do is I want to talk to you guys about when I first met Jesus and some of the ways in which I encountered him, some of the things that I learned and how my faith grew and went up and down and, you know, all that through all the time. So it was back like in, I think it was about AD 29, and I heard about this uh, itinerant rabbi who was going around and he was giving all these TED Talks and people are coming trying to hear him. And one of my friends, I think it might have been, you know, Philip or somebody, he invites me to go to go hear this guy named Jesus. So I go to one of his TED Talks. I'm like, this guy's pretty amazing. You know, he packs more in 20 minutes than most pastors pack in like 30, 35, 40 minutes in their sermons, you know. And so I'm pretty impressed with this guy. So whenever he was in town, I decided I wanted to go and hear Jesus and hear what he was saying. And as I heard him more and more, I started going to some of the other towns when he was over there listening to what he's saying. And so then one day after one of his TED Talks, Jesus looks at me and he says, hey, Thomas, I want you to become one of my followers. And I'm like, this is awesome, you know, because different rabbis, they would have, you know, they would ask people to be their followers or as we would say, to be their disciples and to be asked 
by a rabbi like Jesus to be one of his followers, to be one of the guys that's going to hang out with him on a day-to-day basis, that was a pretty amazing opportunity, and and it didn't come along very often. So I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. This is going to be pretty awesome. And so one of the first things that happened, you know, I, I remember all sorts of things going on, but one of the first things that happened was uh, Jesus was invited to go to this wedding in this town called Cana, and uh, we got invited to go to the wedding too, and that was pretty cool. And it's a pretty big wedding, you know, and weddings in those days, a little different from now. Weddings in those days went on for several days, and after a while, they ran out of wine at this wedding, and I don't know what was going on. Like, are they extra heavy drinkers, or did the groom's family kind of like mess up and not have enough wine? But whatever it was, they ran out of wine, and so Jesus' mother comes to Jesus, and, he sa- and she says, Jesus, hey, they've run out of wine. And, and Jesus is like, Mom, you know, what am I supposed to do here? You know, and his mother says to the servants, just talk to him. He'll take care of everything. And so then Jesus takes like 150 gallons of water, and he turns it into wine. And it's not like the wine, you know, that you get that comes in one of those bags. This is like really good wine. This is like the best wine that we've ever tasted. But you know, the thing about it was nobody knew except like a couple of the waiters, and nobody listens to what the waiters are saying. You know, like a couple of the waiters and a few of us, we knew who turned the water into wine, but nobody else did. And Jesus is like, keep it quiet. This is not the time for me to go public. I'm like, dude, you're like the best speaker I've ever heard, and you can turn water into wine Like, why don't you want to go public? And he says, this is not the time for that. And my friend John was there. John was like Jesus' closest friend. I hung out with Jesus a lot, but John was with him even more than I was. And John wrote this biography of Jesus. I heard that you guys have been reading through that this fall. And if you haven't, you got to read it. It's like one of the best things that you could ever read. Anyway, I'm sorry. My wife keeps telling me, like, I go off on these digressions and stuff. And I'll try not to do that too much today. But anyway, so John wrote this biography of Jesus, and and he kind of summed up what happened at that wedding at Cana this way. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples, that was me and everybody else, his disciples believed in him. We're like, this guy... He can turn water into wine. I got to be with this guy. Something amazing is going on here. So anyway, a little while later, after the wedding, we decided to head up to Jerusalem. Now, Cana is north and, and Jerusalem is south, but, so you'd think we're going down. But actually, we're going up because like, Jerusalem's up on a hill, so it's calling going. I'm, I'm digressing again. Anyway, so we, get, we ended up in Jerusalem, and we walk into the temple, and as you get there, there's like all these animals, and the people are trying to buy and sell the animals, and there's people who are doing like this foreign currency exchange thing, and it's just like a zoo in there, and Jesus goes postal. He just like, he knocks over the tables, he, brings, he makes a whip, he drives all the animals out, he drives all the people out, and I'm like, this guy is awesome, you know? Hey, yeah, I'm with him, man. He is the man, you know? And, and I think the issue was, it wasn't just like he didn't like the zoo aspect. It's the temple was supposed to be about worshiping God, right? And there's all this activity going on there. And Jesus is saying, people can't come and worship God if you're gonna turn his house into a marketplace. And I'm thinking, yeah, This guy is so zealous for God. That's why I like him. But then things got a little bit dicey at this point. Because, see, the religious leaders, 
they didn't like what Jesus was doing here because, you know, they were, they were the ones that had set up this whole marketplace kind of thing. So they didn't like that. So they come to him and they're like, hey, who died and made you king? Like, what gives you the right to come in here and do all this stuff? And then Jesus did this thing. He says this thing, and he does this from time to time. And it's like, I don't know what's going on here. But he makes this really cryptic statement. And he says something about, you're going to destroy this temple. And then in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. But they hear it kind of like as Jesus is threatening to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. And I'm like, I don't know if that was the smartest thing you could have said, Jesus, because like, you know, speaking against the temple, that's a capital crime. They could kill you for that. I'm thinking this is going to come back to haunt you at some point, Jesus. So I'm not so sure how smart Jesus is in this situation. And, And let me just kind of pause for a second. As I look back on it now, after Jesus has died and after Jesus has risen again, I understand he wasn't talking, saying that he was going to destroy the physical temple and rebuild it. He was saying they were going to destroy him, his body. They were going to kill him. And then in three days, he was going to rise from the dead. But we didn't get it at that time. And so I'm just kind of wondering what's going on here with Jesus. And the way John puts it, he says, after Jesus was raised from the dead, after he was raised from the dead, we recalled what he had said. And then we believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So we didn't get it at the time. And so if you kind of think about where my faith was going in all this, Wedding at Cana, this is like awesome. Guy turns water into wine, I believe. Drives people out of the temple, that's pretty cool too. He is the man. But at this point, honestly, after this whole temple thing, you know, with the, with the thing with the religious leaders, I'm beginning to wonder. And so I'm kind of having my doubts. And I know that sounds kind of strange with just, you know, just a few weeks before, like I was like, he's the man, I believe, and all that sort of stuff. But if you stop and think about it, I'm assuming that you guys are like me, right? There are times when your faith is really strong. You know, when you have this kind of mountaintop experience and you're like, you're with Jesus and you're really close to him. But then other times stuff happens and you begin to doubt and you've got your questions and you're not so sure. And so your faith is going up and down and up and down. And that's the, I don't know if you're not, maybe you're not like me, but that's the way my faith was at that time. And and honestly, even now from time to time, I still have my questions and I still have my doubts. But anyway, I'm starting to digress a little bit. I want to keep going on with the whole story here. So a couple of years after the temple incident, we're back up in Galilee. And and like, if you don't know the geography of the area, Galilee's up north. It's kind of like near the Meadowlands, you know. And so I forget what exit it is off the parkway or or the turnpike, but um, that's where it is. And so people get word that Jesus is in town. And by this time, this is like two years or so after everything that had started off. By this time, Jesus is like a celebrity. Everybody knows who Jesus is. So he's up there in Galilee and everybody flocks to hear him. And and we're standing there and we're watching. It's like five, 10, 15. Some people said there were like 20,000 people that came out to hear Jesus. And he's talking and he's giving him messages and, and things. And everybody's really excited but as the day wears on, they start to get hungry. And we're like, hey, Jesus, it's, it's time, you know, been really good. 
We've got to send the people home so they can go and they can buy some food. And Jesus looks at us and he says, you guys give them something to eat. And we're like, where are we going to get food for all these people? And then, and then I think it was Philip, you know, he was kind of like a brown noser guy. Anyway, so Philip says, hey, Jesus, here's a guy, here's a, here's a kid. He's got like five loaves and two fish. I, I don't know if that's enough. Of course it's not enough. Five loaves and two fish for like 15, 20,000 people. I don't know what Philip was thinking. But Jesus, he looks at Philip and he says, it's enough. And then Jesus did what he did so many times. What an example to me. He looks up to heaven and he prays. And then he starts handing out the bread and the fish. And I don't know how it happened. It's obviously a miracle of God. But everybody had enough food. And then Jesus says to us, hey, guys, pick up the leftovers. We, you know, we want to leave the place cleaner you know, than when we arrived. And so he says, pick up the leftovers. So each of us has this basket, and I'm picking up the leftover bread, and I'm putting it in the basket. And as I'm getting near the end, I'm looking down at my basket that's overflowing, and I'm like, wait a second. There's more bread in my basket than we started with. Who is this man? I think this might be the Messiah. I think this might be the guy that we've been waiting for. That was really strengthening to my faith. So anyway, then that night, like we decide we're going to cross the Sea of Galilee and this big storm comes up and Jesus comes walking on the water. It's no big, I mean, actually, it's a really big deal here. You know, you see Jesus walking on the water and in the middle of a storm and he's calm on the sea and this whole thing. You got to read about this in John's gospel. If you've never read it, you have got to read about this because this is pretty amazing. But what I want to get to is what happened on the other side. So Jesus crosses this lake and he goes to the other side, and the crowds are like, where is Jesus? And we had, you know, we had gone across as well. I, I don't think they were actually terribly interested in the rest of us. They wanted to know where Jesus was. But anyway, so we get across to the other side, and then the crowds find out that that's where Jesus was. So they cross the lake as well. They go around the lake, and they're there, and I'm figuring they want another free lunch, right? Because Jesus had fed them the day before. Maybe he'd given them dinner. So they're looking for lunch. And what Jesus does is just amazingly brilliant. He takes their physical hunger and he turns it into an opportunity to talk about their spiritual hunger, to talk about their spiritual need. He takes their desire for physical food and he says, you know what, that's important. But even more important you need spiritual food. And, and John kind of summarizes it this way. He says, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to Jesus and I'm saying, he's speaking directly to me. I get hungry every day. I know that I need physical food. And I've been trying to figure out what is it about this guy that has drawn me to him even more than just you know him providing physical food and turning water into wine. It's because as I hear him speak, I realize that he has the words of life. And so when he talks about himself being the bread of life, I realize I need deep in my heart, deep in my soul, what he is offering. And I'm just amazed by that. And I'm saying, I believe and I want to follow him for the rest of my life.
And then things start to get a little bit weird again. You know, and Jesus starts, uh, starts says something that's it's just kind of like out of the box. He says, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. And the people are like, what is he talking about? Is he talking about cannibalism here? And, you know, like Peter and James and Philip and, and Bartholomew and I, we're all kind of huddling around trying to figure out what Jesus means by this. And we see the people one by one just start getting up and leaving. And hundreds, hundreds of the people just say, I've had enough. Something's wrong with this guy. I am out of here. And so then Jesus looks at us because he sees all the people leaving and he looks at us and he says, you guys going to leave too? And then Peter, Peter like, I'm kind of shy. I don't like to talk a lot. It may seem like I do, but Peter, man, he talked all the time and sometimes it was kind of funny what he said, but anyway, that's, I'm sorry, I'm digressing again. So like Peter, he just says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. And I'm like, you know what? I don't, I'm not sure I quite get this whole thing about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I get it now. I get it that was a metaphor talking about believing in him and, and trusting in him. That time I was still a little uncertain about it. But I'm like, you know what? I may not fully understand everything that you're saying, Jesus, but I'm with you. I'm going to follow you because you know what? You have touched my soul. And so I'm going to follow after you. You've got the words of eternal life. So anyway, I could keep going on and on and on about all the amazing things that Jesus did. You remember like the time you probably read about it or, or heard about it, uh, the, the time when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? I mean, that was sick. I mean, come on, guy is dead. Jesus raises him from the dead. That's just pretty amazing. And that was so strengthening to my faith when I saw that. And as I said, there were times when I was having my doubts as well. And as, as, the, as the years went on, we were with Jesus for about three and a half years and we're getting closer and closer to really the end of Jesus' ministry, although we didn't realize at the time that it was gonna be the end. We're getting closer and closer to Passover and things are starting to get a bit hairy, right? The, the, the religious leaders are getting more and more and more upset with Jesus and there are rumors out there that they're plotting to kill Jesus. And like Jesus is telling us that they're gonna kill him. We don't wanna believe it, so we're not really listening to it because do you really wanna hear that the guy that you have been following for three and a half years, that he's gonna die? You don't wanna hear that. You don't wanna believe that. And Jesus, in some sense, didn't even really seem to be concerned about it. I guess he was concerned about it, but he didn't seem to be doing much to stop it. It was like he was on this mission, and even if it meant his death, he was gonna fulfill his mission. But I didn't wanna believe that aspect of it. So it's Passover, and we're gathered together in this room upstairs in one of the houses, and we're sharing a Passover meal together. And I look back now, and obviously, if you guys have, have ever read, like, you know, John's biography of Jesus or any of the other ones, you know what's about to happen, right? This is the last meal that we're ever going to eat with Jesus before he's killed. We didn't know it at the time, but that what was going, that's what was going on. And so Jesus... He's saying to us during the meal, he says, I'm going to go away 
and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me. And we're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? What do you mean you're going to go away? How do we know where you are? And Jesus, you know, Jesus is talking about this and we're going back and forth. And we don't fully understand this thing. And then near the end of the meal, he prays this incredible prayer for us. You think that the thing that you, you, know, that you guys call the Lord's Prayer, like our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, you think that's an awesome prayer? You got to read this one where Jesus prayed for us and he prayed that God would protect us and he prayed for our unity. It's, it's in John's biography. It's in chapter 17. You got to read it. It's pretty amazing. Anyway, he's praying this prayer for us. And I'm just like, he loves us more than anybody has ever loved me. I, mean, I, I just want to follow this guy for the rest of my life. So after dinner, we head out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where that traitor Judas betrays Jesus. And the soldiers come and they arrest him. And it's kind of like a whirlwind. I, don't, I honestly don't remember all the details of what happened that night because I'm kind of stunned. And I, I had to read what John wrote because I was just so confused. And it's just a whirlwind in my mind. But one thing I do remember hearing about was at his trial, I was absolutely right, at his trial, they took what he said back in the temple and they twisted it just enough, and they used it against him. They said, you said you were going to destroy the temple. And they used that as part of the evidence to convict him. And then they end up crucifying him, and he's dead, and he's buried. And we're just, like, we're devastated. I mean, come on. Our Messiah, the guy who we thought was going to bring us life, is dead. Did we doubt? Yeah, we doubted. You would have doubted, right? If the guy who you thought was the one is lying in a tomb, yeah, of course we doubted in that situation. And then Sunday came. And Sunday was just, it was a whirlwind of activity. First thing, First thing we hear is Mary Magdalene saying that she'd been to the tomb and somebody had rolled away the stone. And, and if, you know, you don't bury people the way that we used to bury people back then. In, in this particular case, Jesus was buried in a cave, you know, on the side of a hill. And they put this big stone in front of it so that nobody could get in or out. I mean, I don't know anybody was going to get out of the tomb, but so that nobody could get in the tomb maybe and steal the body away or whatever. And, and so Mary says they've rolled away the stone. And so Peter and John go running over there and they get there and they look inside. And Jesus is gone. So we're figuring, like, who stole the body? And then, then a few hours later, Mary Magdalene comes and she says, I have seen Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, right. You wish you had seen Jesus. And she says, no, 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 no. I've seen Jesus. And I'm like, I want to believe that. I really want to believe that. But come on, risen from the dead, it's a little too much for me to believe. And then on Monday evening, all the guys, they're gathered together back in, in that upper room. And they had tried to invite me, but my cell phone battery had died, so I didn't get the text until, until later on. So I'm not there. And this is like really important for you to understand that I am not there and why I'm not there, okay? It wasn't my fault. So I'm not there. So, and John puts it this way. He says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, except for Thomas, 
with the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Of course, they're overjoyed when they saw the Lord because he had risen from the dead. But there's a little subtlety that you missed there, right? The doors are locked and Jesus just shows up inside. This is amazing. He has risen from the dead and he has just passed through the door or the wall or whatever it is. He shows them his hands. He shows them his side. And they're like, yes, he's risen from the dead. And then they told me about it. And I'm like, unless I see those nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, there is no way. I'm going to believe because this is too incredible for me to believe. And that's where I got the name Doubting Thomas. And you know, as I was telling you before, that's this whole Doubting Thomas thing. It bothers me because you know what? Those guys had the same questions I had. They had the same doubts that I had. They were up in the upper room and it was locked. If they had believed, why would the upper room have been locked when they're hanging out up there, right? Why would they have been afraid of the Jewish religious leaders at that point? So they had all the same questions. They had all the same doubts. I was just, I was late to the party. I mean, you know, how many people refer to timid Philip, you know, or scared Thaddeus? But no, I'm known as Doubting Thomas. What happened to like Jumping James or something? You know, anyway, maybe you could call me late Thomas, but or cell phone battery died Thomas, but this whole doubting Thomas thing. Anyway, I, my wife says, I like keep going off on these tangents. She also says I like to repeat myself from time to time. So anyway, let's go back to the story. So a week later, it is like a week later, and we're in the house again, and I'm with them this time. John points that out, which I appreciated for my friend John. Anyway, so the doors are locked, and Jesus came, and he stood among us again, and he says, peace be with you. Same thing as last time. Doors are locked, right? If they really believed and, you know, fully got this whole thing, why would the doors be? Right, okay, so you get the point. Anyway, so then he turns to me, and he says, Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And I just fell on my face and I said, my Lord and my God, as soon as I saw Jesus, as soon as I saw him, all my doubts were gone. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had risen from the dead, that my Messiah was alive, that he was my Lord and my God. And Jesus looks at me and he says, because you have seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And as I was thinking about that, I said, you know, Doubting Thomas was a pretty fair thing to say. My attitude wasn't right. Man, he was so unbelievably gracious to me. I didn't deserve for him to say, hey, here I am. Look at my hands. Put your finger in the nail marks. I didn't deserve for him to do that. But yet he did that for me because that's the kind of God he is. And that's one of the things that draws me to him. He didn't give me what I deserved. He gave me so much more and so much better than what I deserved. I believed 
because I saw. You guys, those of you who believe, you believe even though you haven't seen. And that's amazing. And that's so encouraging. It is such a blessing to know Jesus. And as I look back on my time with Jesus, I was with him for, for you know, three and a half years, as I mentioned. I learned so many different lessons. And I want to share just a few of those. I want to share three of those with you this morning. First one, don't be afraid to express your doubts. Don't be afraid to express your doubts. Jesus didn't get mad at me. He was gracious to me. He understood my weakness. He understood my doubts. Jesus wants us to believe, but he doesn't expect us to believe blindly. He already knows that we have these doubts. He's God. He knows what's going on in our hearts and our minds. He already knows the doubts and the questions that we have. He's a big God. He's not going to be like shaken by our questions and doubts. You know, he's not sitting up there worrying, oh, are they going to believe in me? And, you know, no, he's, he's very self-confident. And so he's not thrown by our questions and our doubts. So don't be afraid to ask your questions. There are so many good resources out there. You guys have so much more than we had back then. And if, you, if you're looking for some resources, ask, ask one of your pastors. Those guys can point you in the right direction for that. So ask your questions. Express your doubts. But you need to be respectful when you do it. You need to be respectful. You know, you guys live in New Jersey, right? And, and I've been here for a week or so. Man, it seems like skepticism and cynicism is, is kind of like your state sport here in New Jersey. So, you know, your slogan, I heard that your slogan is New Jersey. You got a problem with that? You know, I kind of like that actually. But anyway, so Clay and I are driving here this morning and there's this car in front of us and it's got this sign on it. He was explaining to me that it's a bumper sticker and it says, question authority, Right? So we're going along, and we pulled up next to the car, and I'd been playing with the window. See, our chariots, we didn't have that, like, electric thing where you could roll up and down the window. You know, we had to hand, and actually, we didn't even have windows in our chariots. So I'm playing with this thing, so I know who to roll, how to roll down the window. So I see this sign, and it says, question authority. So I push a little button, and the window goes down, and I yell out, why? And the woman looks over at me, and she starts saying something, like, words that I had never heard before, and she's making these hand signals, and, like... Clay quickly rolls up the window because, like, he had this control on his side and he could do that. And then, like, I tried it again and it stopped working and he just looks at me. He's like, I think we're done with this particular thing. Anyway, like, this woman, the cynicism that she's expressing on the bumper sticker, don't be like that. I mean, yes, God can handle your questions and your doubts, but he is God and it's kind of good to be respectful of him. So anyway, express your doubts but do it respectfully. You know, I crossed the line a little bit there when I was saying, unless I can put my fingers in his hands, unless I can see, I'm not going to believe. Don't do that. Don't quite go and cross that line that way. Just be respectful of him. And then finally, you got to read scripture. You got to read scripture. Jesus isn't hanging out here in summit, right? You can't look and see his hands and his feet and the hole in his side. He's not here. It's 2,000 years and thousands of miles later. But what he has given you that we didn't have at the time is four records of who he is and what he's done. My buddy John, 
He wrote a biography of Jesus. Matthew was one of our fellow disciples as well, and he wrote another biography of Jesus. And then Mark wrote one. He got all his information from Peter, who was hanging out for us. And then there was Luke. And at first, I wasn't so sure about this guy, Luke, because he's a Gentile, which means he's not a Jew, so he's not exactly one of us, and I'm not sure how good of a job he's going to do you know, with this biography of Jesus. But Luke is like this unbelievable historian, and so he does all this research, and he interviews all these people, and he writes a biography of Jesus. So you guys have got like four biographies of Jesus, which is something that we didn't happen to have at that time. And here's what John wrote about this. John, at the end of his, at the end of his biography, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, because he did so many different things. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wrote his biography of Jesus, so that you guys who wouldn't have the opportunity to meet Jesus physically and to see Jesus physically, so that you guys could know who Jesus is and what he'd done, and that you would believe like I believe, and that you would have life like I have life. And so that's why John and the others wrote their, their, their biography. So you got to read the Bible because that's the best way you can find out about who Jesus is. The Apostle Paul, he's a guy that, uh, that wrote a little bit later. I met him a couple of times. He wasn't actually a very impressive speaker. If you've ever heard him speak, actually, I guess you couldn't have heard him speak. But anyway, he wasn't like this super impressive speaker, but he was a really amazing writer. And one of the things he said in, in a letter that he wrote to, to Christians in Rome, he said, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So if you want to strengthen your faith, you got to read the word of God. You've got to read the Bible. Okay, so I, I, I think I've made that point. God gave us the Bible so that you could grow in your faith. So now you've heard my story. You've heard about the ups and the downs in my faith. You heard about the times when I was just like, I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. And you heard about the times when I'm like, I'm really not so sure about him. And you heard about how that encounter with him, seeing my risen Lord was what really sealed my faith in him. That's my story. What's your story? Where are you in your journey of faith? Have you ever come to the point well, you've looked at Jesus and you've said, my Lord and my God, I believe that you died on that cross for my sins and that you rose again so that I could have new life. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, man, you got to do that. Ask yourself, what's standing in the way? Why wouldn't I do that? Why haven't I done that? And if you need some help in figuring that out, again, talk to one of your pastors or Talk to a friend who knows Jesus who brought you here or, or whatever it may be. But what if you've already done that? What if you're like, yes, I believe that Jesus is my Lord. I believe that Jesus is my God. I believe that Jesus is my Savior. How's your faith progressing? You know, I believed pretty early on and I had my ups and downs in my faith, but it was really this up and to the right thing. You know, it's going up and down, but it's ultimately moving up and to the right. What about you guys? Is your faith moving up and to the right? 
If it's not, or even if it is, you got to spend time reading the Bible. You got to be willing to express your doubts. As I said, God already knows them. Express your doubts. Ask your questions. And ask him to strengthen your faith. So wherever you are in your journey of faith, whether you're just starting out, or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for three and a half years or three and a half decades, wherever you are, I just hope and I just pray for you guys that today you will take that next step in your journey of faith. Hey, would you mind if I prayed for you for a minute? Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to have scripture, to have the Bible, to have this record of what you did and what you said. And I thank you that although today in the 21st century we don't physically see you among us, we, we can read the record of your life on earth and we can read what others like Paul and Peter and James and John wrote about you and, and taking it a step further. And Father, I, I pray for my friends here. I pray for those that have never come to the point where they would say that you are my Lord and my God. I pray that they would do that really soon. I pray that they would not be afraid to express their doubts and their questions and their concerns. I pray for those that are your followers here. I pray that you would strengthen their faith, that their love for you would grow and their desire to tell others about you would grow. And I thank you that you are ready and willing to hear us when we pray. And I pray that you would work in our hearts and on our minds to draw us closer and closer to you. And I pray all these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, so I'm Clay again. And I uh, just wanted to say to you guys, it's been great to see you this morning. And I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. We'll look forward to seeing you next weekend. Thanks.